I think one of the interesting and actionable things about that way of looking at the world is on the, the left side of the curve to look at what are fundamentally large industries, interesting things where a lot of value is created or has the potential to get created and are not hot subjects of conversation in Silicon Valley right now, right? And on the right side of things, exactly right, to go in and mine around, uh, looking back 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and like, what are, are things that were hyped? And because there was, there was a nugget of truth in there, that there was a lot of value to be had. But then the hype crashed and people forgot about it and people wrote it off. It's like, we already tried that thing. But in reality, progress has continued along those angles, right? And that the market has matured, matured the, the technologies have matured. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to The Syndicate, the show where we get the world's most interesting and influential investors on the program. Today, we've got one of them, and he's coming back. We've got David Weekly. Thanks for coming today, David. You bet. Happy to be here. So just in case people didn't listen to the last episode with you, can you give a brief rundown of your background? Sure. I'm a nerd through and through. Started programming at about the age of five. My dad was an engineer. His dad, in turn, was, uh, <laughs> had a job title of computer, which technically makes me one-quarter computer. Did some research work at Harvard, simulating antimatter recombination, and then did some work at MIT Lincoln Labs, trying to help them tell the difference between nuclear bomb tests and mine collapses. Then came over to Stanford, probably wrote the first English language description of what is MP3, uh, got kind of involved in that. Worked for a big company, worked for a little company, then decided to start my own company. That's actually still around, PBWiki, the world's first private wiki host, uh, hosting about 2 million groups. Started a second company that got acquired by Facebook, spent about a year and a half there, helped kick off internet.org, got passionate about global connectivity, came over to Google about four years ago to create a new research and development lab for them around connectivity and getting people online, bounced over to Verily and helped them put together a cardiology program and get their product management organization in place, and then came over to run product for Google's data center software team uh, in October of last year. So I'm responsible for trying to keep all the lights on for all of Alphabet's servers and machines and networking components and all that. We've got, uh, we've got quite a few servers here. So, yep. Um, and on the side, I, I love investing in people. I love helping startups. One of my goals in starting my first startup was learning more about business and failing in interesting ways and then showing other people how to fail differently. Um, so I've been advising and mentoring startups for about 10 years now and investing in them for about seven, eight years. Uh, the first investment vehicle that I used was called Mexican.vc. And that was a very small fund that we put together to invest in early stage Mexican technology companies. And we were actually the first Silicon Valley fund to do that. And this year, I'm super excited to say we actually got a fair chunk of liquidity and have now returned over 11x cash on cash to our limited partners, making us the most successful Mexican tech fund in history. Invest in via a couple other vehicles over the last couple of years. Invest in over 50 startups now. Uh, put together Drone VC, which technically made me the world's first uh, drone investor in terms of putting together a vehicle just for investing in drone companies. Worked with Leonard Spicer to put together Neuron VC, investing in uh, deep learning companies. And I'm now beginning to explore a couple other investment areas, including investing in Bangladesh. I see that you have a really interesting and broad background, and also the companies that you're looking at. These are a lot of the same companies that we would be having on potentially like a Fringe FM episode. So for people that don't know, if you just go to fringe.fm, it's like long-form TED with the world's smartest and most interesting folks. But you've had Finless Foods, you've had, mm -hmm. although it didn't quite work out, Planetary Resources. There are a couple of really interesting companies. So it looks like, are you looking at companies that, what's your time frame in terms of an investment philosophy? There's a better question. Sure. So I overall like to find folks early. You know, when they're, they've got something working, right? It's a couple folks in a garage and they've been poking at a problem and thinking about a problem and, and finally uh, have the beginnings of something that's working. 
So I, I don't invest just in a PowerPoint slide and a you know cool idea, uh, generally speaking. And I also generally don't invest after a team is already uh, ramped and has a really clear business model and is scaling that up. I really like to get it on the ground floor, uh, seed, pre-seed, whatever the heck you want to call that these days. And generally, folks who see something interesting that the rest of the market doesn't see yet. And so when you ask about time frame, I'm willing to be really patient. In particular, since I'm not investing through a formal fund structure that has got 10-year returns where we're investing out of the fund in the first three years. And so we've got seven years to hit liquidity. I, I don't have any clock like that. And so as long as I can find founders who have the grit to see a thing through and are, are going to take something through to completion, whether that's five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I'm willing to be patient on that, on that journey with them. Where are we on that journey when it comes to drone, drone technology delivery? possibly flying cars? Yeah, so I, I think it's a great, it's a great question. Uh, one of the things I use to frame my thinking is to contrast the hype cycle, which I'm sure you're familiar with, as are many of your listeners here, where something sort of languishes in obscurity for a long time, and then suddenly people discover it, and it becomes the new hotness, and it ramps up and ramps up. And then uh, People say, hey, wait, this thing is overhyped, and you get the trial of disillusionment, and people start ignoring it, and it becomes uncool to talk about that because, hey, that was so last year. And then eventually, if there's really actually something there, some degree of hype at least comes back. And it's like, hey, wait, this thing that was hyped and then discredited, there's actually something to it. So you contrast that curve, which looks like a, a hump and then an up and to the right with what I call the secular value curve, which is how much real value is this industry actually producing? And that tends to be a lot more boring of a curve, right? It, um, it's, it doesn't tend to have crazy step functions, and, and, and it tends to be monotonically increasing. And so what, where you want to get in as an investor is you want to find a technology or an industry where the, the secular value, the, the real value that's being provided is in excess of the, the market perceived value, the hype cycle, where things are at, right? Which, which means there are two interesting points on the curve. One is the left point on, on the curve where you have a nascent field that is actually starting to deliver real value and real impact, but the rest of the market hasn't realized that yet. And you're making a bet that they will, right? Uh, and the other interesting place to jump in is uh, right in the trial of disillusionment. After a given field has been kind of passed over or discredited as being overhyped and, and everyone's run away from it in droves. But in reality, the value being provided has continued to increase. So those are the two spots where on a value-driven investment basis, you can get in. And if you're willing to be patient, you can see tremendous returns. So you either want to see something that the market doesn't, but the market will see in the next you know, five, 10 years or so, or you want to see something that the market's already written off is so boring, so last year, actually so last decade in some cases, and um, there's actually continued to be ongoing advances in, in that field that the market's going to eventually wake up and realize that there's real value being provided there. So examples would be AI 10 years ago or nanotech today. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And so I, I think one of the interesting and actionable things about that way of looking at the world is on the, the left side of the curve to look at what are fundamentally large industries, interesting things where a lot of value is created or has the potential to get created and are not hot subjects of conversation in Silicon Valley right now, right? And on the right side of things, exactly right, to go in and mine around, uh, looking back 10, 20, 30, 40 years and like, what are, are things that were hyped? And because there was, there was a nugget of truth in there, that there was a lot of value to be had. But then the hype crashed and people forgot about it and people wrote it off. It's like, we already tried that thing. But in reality, progress has continued along those angles, right? And that the market has matured, matured the, the technologies have matured. So th those are, it ends up producing actionable insights for, for what do you do? And it also suggests something that... It, it's almost embarrassingly obvious to say, but it's very uncool in Silicon Valley, is that the subjects that everyone is enthusiastic about that are obviously being hyped, to basically ignore those. Uh, <laughs> and um, you know, right now, that's kind of canonically you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto, all of that. 
and, and, and it's really funny because people have almost a an emotional reaction to my saying things like that. People, I, I've actually lost friends because I'm like, hey, I, I'm not really interested in investing in blockchain or crypto companies. And they're like, you're an idiot, right? <laughs> I can't be friends with people as dumb as you. Um, is basically what I was told by some folks. And it's not actually that I believe that there's no value whatsoever in companies that are in the middle of a hype cycle. It's that it's difficult to discern that value when there's so much chaff and there's so much noise. And when you do find value, chances are you're going to overpay for it. And so there is some real value there and that value is increasing. But if you're going to overpay for it, you're never actually going to see really interesting returns or your, your, your odds of seeing interesting returns are, are very significantly diminished. So in, in that sense, I really take my cues from, from Buffett, who said, look, the way to win at investing is very straightforward. It starts with do your homework, come to your own judgment about what the fundamental true value of an asset is, and then do your research and see how is the market valuing this asset. And if your belief is that the asset has more value than the market is valuing it at, buy it and hold it. And conversely, if you believe that an asset has less value than the market is valuing it at, then, then go and sell it. Um, and if you keep that up and are willing to be patient about it, then you'll, you'll end up making a tremendous amount of money. I agree with you on a lot of points, but let's just play devil's advocate for the purpose of the devil, of course. So um, Buffett also missed pretty much all the tech companies and yep. the vast majority of wealth creation. Do you think that that mindset makes things harder to hit? I know a lot of times people will say, it doesn't necessarily matter the valuation you're in as long as you're in on the winners. And I know it's not 100% true, but it's generally true. Well, so it's, it's funny, right? Because we, <laughs> we, we, we remember the success cases, right? Because those, those are the, the exceptions that, that prove the rule, right? So, of course, there's examples around Facebook and you know, people laughing at investors who were willing to pay almost any price at almost any valuation to go and, and get in on on Facebook, right? And certainly if you had gotten in on like a $15 billion valuation, which at the time was derided as wildly overpaying, uh, you'd be sitting pretty now. You'd, you'd have great returns, right? But I, I think it's, it's not helpful to be primarily guided by the exceptions. And instead, looking at, instead look at like oh, over a portfolio. How are you likely to maximize returns? Because you, you're you're totally right that at almost any price, if you had bought into Facebook, you'd you'd have done pretty well from returns. But we, it's also true that not only do we only see a Facebook uh, every five to ten years, so it's not something that you can count on on, on finding kind of anywhere, but also. And this is a little sobering. I feel like we're 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 entering an era where the the, the megacorns, the hundred billion dollar companies, are are actually getting a, a bit harder to create because of the, the the talent and the IP and the like locked up by a lot of the big companies. So it's just there, there's there's a in a certain sense there's there's less uh, liquidity potential. There's less chance of wildly outsized returns today than there was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so I think we're going to see, well, while we will see more Facebooks, uh, we're, we're going to see them emerging at a, at a lower rate. Because you know, on the one hand, you know, folks are going to go, you know, the, the, the talent was never there to begin with because the big companies are paying top dollar for talent as we continue to see the uh, amount of money people are willing to pay for good software engineers and product managers continuing to increase. On the other hand, you know, we're, we'll see buyouts. And where the buyouts fail, we'll see ruthless competition to go and stamp them out of existence. And so I, I think we're certainly seeing that with, uh, with, with Snapchat, for instance, with Snap, where there were a number of buyout offers. The buyout offers didn't succeed. And so things shifted to phase two of the operation, which is do everything you can to just you know, stamp them out of existence, which has made it very hard for them to you know, make it to a $100 billion valuation. Do you see this changing anytime in the future? I know the tech companies feel more powerful now than ever. Is it regulation? I know GDPR creates some compliance problems for the big companies, but oh, not at I mean, all. Also locks I, them in. 
Yeah, so, so, so GDPR is a huge tax, let me be clear. I don't want to be glib about the tax that is GDPR. But for large companies that already have really well-characterized backends, very large margins, and an ability to throw whole teams of people full-time on things like GDPR compliance, it's part of the cost of doing business, and it's a pain in the butt. And yes, it's expensive, but it's, it's also a tax that the big companies can uh, afford to pay. Little companies can't, right? And so you take a look at regulations like GDPR, and it's actually, these things are hugely beneficial for large companies in that um, they're going to see reduced competition from startups. So I think it's really bad for the overall economy to have very heavyweight, heavy-handed regulation like this. And I think we saw similar things happen in the public markets with Sarbox passed that it was a tax and existing profitable public companies were fine with paying that tax, but it also really pinched the IPO process. And so we saw a lot fewer IPOs happening and people staying in the private markets for much longer because of the increased cost and liabilities uh, that come part and parcel with being a publicly traded company. So I think it's the same thing with regs, right? They they end up perversely advantaging the the big companies. Yeah, pulling up the ladder. Exactly. That combined with uh, bringing money back overseas, Trump's whatever money import deal, it makes it seem like there'll be a lot more small mm-hmm. to medium-sized acquisitions in the future to kill competition and to spend money. Right. And, and like it or not, if you believe that that is likely to be the future, then that is how things are trending for the environment we're going to be in for, call it the next 10 years or so, then you want to make sure that you have an investment strategy that's concordant with that, right? Because if big companies are going to buy early or successfully trounce out the next you know, $100 billion companies that are trying to emerge, then having an investment thesis that counts on that happening probably isn't going to perform very well. How do you think about investing? What are you focused on today? You talked a little bit about it prior, but just wanted to get a bit of a bigger picture. In what sense? In terms of you have a lot of companies from a broad array of industries, disciplines, locales, what are you specifically focused on? Or are you more a uh, take it as it comes kind of guy? So I would say, again, this goes back to my thesis of where do I feel like folks are poking and trying to create value where others aren't, but that the larger markets will be able to, to realize those values uh, in time. So you take a look at DroneSeed, for instance, one of my drone VC portfolio companies. And they came to me with what I thought at first was kind of a preposterous uh, proposition to go and plant forests via drone, right? <laughs> and I, I thought, okay, this is a little silly, right? Why don't you just use a rover? People are cheap. Why not do that? And they actually sat down with me and they educated me on the forestry industry. And so I, I learned a tremendous amount about that. And I got to see how uh, it could make a lot of sense to use drones in forestry. And forestry is a really big industry, right? A lot of money goes into forestry. So I felt like that was a, a good example of somebody seeing something that the rest of the market didn't and, and building a solution for a large market in a really differentiated way. Um, and, and, and that gets back to answering, what, what do I look for in the companies that I'm investing in? It's very similarly, people who see something about the market where there isn't really yet consensus and they're working hard to quickly build a sustainable competitive advantage in that area. Okay. And that area be in constantly changing, but it's something where they do have something that other people don't have. That's right. Okay. I know. So I was checking out right before we hopped on the call, I was checking out your syndicates on AngelList and I see that you have a nice little sign saying, we'll be moving our syndicate investments off AngelList. If you're a credit investor, please visit invest.weekly.org. What gives? So it's interesting. You know, I, I, I've been a, a big fan of AngelList for quite some time. I was a relatively early syndicate lead uh, when they opened those up. And I put together DroneVC uh, as a AngelList syndicate uh, back in mid-2014. And it, at the time, it was really incredible because they could really uh, amplify a deal interest. So if you found uh, an interesting company, and uh, effectively marketed it to the accredited investors on the AngelList platform, you could get a huge number of people piling onto your syndicate and I- investing through your vehicle. 
giving you as the syndicate lead very interesting upside returns because instead of having to earn your carry by returning a whole fund in Angela Syndicate uh, case, you only have to return the individual deal. And so that leads to some potentially very exciting upside economics for a syndicate lead. And so this was was really wonderful. And I feel like 2014, 2015, those were really the kind of golden days of (laughs) uh, Angela Syndicates. And then I feel like kind of what happened late 2016, early 2017 or so is that Angelus kind of took its eye off the ball for supporting syndicate leads. It's funny because the way I was using syndicates was actually never something that they explicitly supported. Their intent for syndicates was always to help a super angel amplify interest in participating in a deal that generally somebody else was leading. And so when I came onto the platform and I immediately started trying to lead deals uh, with the syndicate, that, as if I was a micro VC, um, they described it in several different articles as a, as a, quote, innovative use of the platform, which is on the one hand uh, flattering and on the other hand uh, sh- should concern you in terms of uh, you're, you're using this tool off axis from how we intended it to be used. We saw progressive uh, support just drop from the platform. So it's everything from people could uh, pre-commit to a syndicate back then. So you could say, oh yeah, basically soft commit me for 10K if David's going to be putting 10K of his own money in. And then that would show up on a thermometer. And so if you had, let's say, 250K of soft commit deal money following a given deal, and you had a 300K allocation, the thermometer would show as 250K closed of 300K. And while some of that uh, soft commit kind of effectively opt out money uh, would actually opt out, it would create a tremendous amount of momentum. And so you could fill an allocation without a great deal of difficulty. And then they basically removed that as a feature. I think that was in 2016. Uh, they, re- they, they changed the ability to opt out, to uh, force to opt in only. They removed the thermometer and they removed a lot of the, the other tools that help a syndicate lead uh, find and build momentum. And as a result, the percentage of dollars that are soft committed to a deal that actually close in a deal has totally plummeted, which has been tremendously frustrating as a, as a syndicate lead. There was another aspect too, which is that for a lot of us who were new to leading syndicates, a lot of what Angelus did in terms of taking care of the back office seemed pretty magical. It was just unbelievable that they'd go and take care of the founding of a single purpose vehicle uh, in Delaware and uh, all of the kind of lifetime administration costs of that and filing the K-1s. It was just, it was so cool. I couldn't believe that Angelus was doing all this. And it wasn't until literally years later that uh, I, I really uh, internalized and realized that they're using a third party to do this and that there are actually a couple of different companies in that space that uh, do systematic back office and that you can work with them directly. And so I actually, I saw a couple other syndicate leads bounce off to go and do their own uh, syndicates off platform and working directly with these back office providers. Because at the end of the day, what, what, what AngelList is supposed to do is they're, they're a, market li- a marketplace where they bring together pools of startups who are open to receiving capital and LPs, uh, accredited investors who are interested in investing in startups and syndicate leads effectively corralling that, that matching and performing diligence of their own. But as a syndicate lead, if you've got your own proprietary deal flow and if you already have uh, an LP base in hand, then there's actually not a whole lot of value that AngelList is providing. You just need to go and find one of those back office providers yourself, like a short fund management or Loom Creek. And the, the economics of what you pay out to those folks is, is a lot lower. It's a lot cheaper because they're not doing as much for you as uh, putatively AngelList would be doing. It's like hosting your own e-commerce store on Shopify versus selling on Amazon and playing on someone else's playground. Totally. Well, one of the other difficult things was that AngelList raised a whole bunch of syndicate matching funds, but they would only generally deploy those funds for deals that were being led by some other party than a syndicate. So if a VC, for instance, was putting $2 million into a round and there was an extra 500 k allocation for a syndicate, that the AngelList matching funds would go and participate in a round like that. But if the syndicate was leading the round themselves, the, the matching funds would stay out. And so I, I, I always felt frustrated by that, that they, in theory, had uh, lots of money lined up to go and match syndicates from uh, Maiden Lane and, and, and other vehicles like that. 
And we basically never saw any of that money in, uh, in our deals. That was, that was a little frustrating. So that was putatively one of the other reasons why would you use AngelList versus going out on your own? Well, there's all this magic matching money and just like uh, none of that really materialized. So what happens next? Well, I'm still figuring that out. You know, I've got a, a day job here at Google that's pretty involving. So I'm, I'm definitely, I've, I've actually never been full-time on investing. It, one of the things I'm trying to figure out is, well, maybe that makes sense. Maybe that is something that would be interesting to do now because I love helping startups. I love coupling advice with capital. Um, people seem to appreciate advice a lot more when it comes with a check. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that could be uh, an interesting uh, career move for me. And if I was to do something like that, the options would be to either join uh, an existing fund as a GP or to start my own fund. And I'm, I'm friends with a number of folks who have uh, started their own uh, seed funds and the like. And it's super challenging. So I definitely don't have any uh, <laughs> false ideas about exactly how hard it is. I actually have one friend who spent basically four years uh, trying to raise a first seed fund, uh, failed and is is now looking for work basically and and that's a really difficult outcome because you you think about how hard that is it's basically uh, if you were doing a startup and you worked on it for four years and it failed like hey that happens right um but at least you built something you learned a lot you brought something to market customers maybe hated it right but um you got something out of that journey if you go and you try to raise money for four years and you don't close your fund it's basically all a wash. It's basically you, you, you lost those <laughs> years of your life. And so it's a, raising your own uh, seed fund. It's a little bit like trying to raise a Series B for a startup with uh, no product <laughs> at, at all. Um, and so there's a, there's a very high bar there. And frankly, a lot of people are, are, are out there doing it. So there's a lot of competition for that LP money. And it's crazy how much it, it is p- almost purely a function of who you know. So. I was in a meeting here in Toronto and I, I met a, a Chinese VC and she said that, yeah, she was friends with some family in China and they gave her $15 million to try to be a VC. And it's like, wow, the, um, the, the game is very, very interesting. How do you go about trying to meet LPs, both large high net worth individuals, family offices, and then other, other potentially larger parties, institutions, endowments, et cetera? Well, the, the short answer is I'm the wrong person to talk to because you know, I, I don't have a track record of raising hundreds of millions of dollars from LPs, you know, connecting with sovereign wealth funds or family offices. Generally speaking, there's different tiers of LPs who are going to be cutting different size checks. So as you get into the upper echelons, it, it's, it's really structurally interesting because you have entities that are, are prohibited from check, cutting checks smaller than like $100 million, right? So if you're raising a $20 million seed fund, it, they can't talk to you uh, <laughs> because they, they need to have no more than, say, you know, 20, 25% of a given fund, and they can't cut a check smaller than $100 million. And so if, if you want to get their money, you're, you're going to need to be raising a multi-hundred million dollar fund. And then you're going to need to show up with the appropriate credentials and uh, LPA and thesis and history and GP in order to justify a multi-hundred million dollar fund. So I think for a lot of folks, their first fund is on the order of like a five to twenty million dollar fund on a on a per GP basis, depending on what their background and network is. And then just trying to trying to pull in that friends and family and going to some of the fund of funds. Mubadala Ventures, for instance, has been uh, doing a couple fund of funds uh, kind of style investment in the Bay Area. But a lot of it is going to be exactly what you said. It's going to be who you know. And I think a bunch of it is going to be for that smaller fund size of 5 to 15 or so, uh, getting LPs who aren't otherwise LPs. They're, they're, they're people who are your friends and not folks who are institutionals who are getting pitched by lots of other VCs. They're just people who believe in you and believe in your, your track record and your thesis for what you want to do with the money. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. 
If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to thesyndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, thesyndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. What do you do as a syndicate lead? Do you have any special practices or ways you work with your investors, et cetera, that you would recommend or share? So I make it very clear what kind of investor I am and what to expect out of the engagement. Yeah, I think different, just like there are different styles of management, I think there are different styles of investment. And I take my cues from Ron Conway, who's you know, been described, I think, fairly accurately as the godfather of Silicon Valley. Um, who will come and make a quick, honest assessment about whether or not to invest and give candid feedback about what he likes and doesn't like, and then will be available as effectively as a passive resource. So he's not going to sit on your board. He's not going to yell at you about do this, don't do this. He's not going to try and become operational. He's just going to be a service provider for you. And so I make it clear to my LPs that that's the basis on which I'm investing. So I basically try to be a nice guy. So everyone wants to take my money. There's no good reason to not take my money. But part of that is that they're going to have fairly limited exposure uh, ongoing to updates about how the company is going. And they're going to have no controls or, or, or recourse, right? And so I think my, my LPs go in eyes wide open that I'm going to be looking for the following set of things in a company. I got excited about this particular company for this set of reasons. I think that the industry is poised to grow and that this company will do well in that industry. It's kind of uh, oftentimes off axis again from what, where the hype cycle is, and that's very deliberate. And then we're going to cheer on the founder and be there for them as you know, it, it, advisors and service providers whenever they need our help. What are you worried about today? So I think a couple different things. One is just Silicon Valley's in a bit of a weird position right now where just the the labor market continues to get priced up and, and folks continue to get bought out or outcompeted. And so like I was mentioning earlier, uh, the pressures against a startup hitting wild success are, are fairly high. I mean, I, I, I think that's balanced in some ways nicely by the fact that my God, there's a very comfy safety net, right? It, both on the one hand, in the form of plentiful resources in terms of both uh, seed capital that's available for them, as well as educational resources, mentors, et cetera, that are available. And on the other hand, that, hey, if the startup doesn't work out, you can get a pretty nicely paid, uh, high prestige job at, at one of these big tech companies. But it makes me worried for the overall health and vibrancy of the startup ecosystem. And also has me worried about the health of Silicon Valley. Just when the typical person living in Silicon Valley can't afford to buy a typical home, that's not great. That doesn't feel sustainable. And it, and it ends up leading to a kind of unpleasant society and environment that takes us away from a lot of the uh, open, creative, sharing roots that define Silicon Valley culture. But one of the bits of relief that I had in 2001, 2002 was when the dot-com crash happened, a lot of the hustlers who were just here to make a quick buck because there was this thing called dot-com that was happening and they didn't really give a shit about technology uh, or programming or nerds or anything like that. These, these were more of the jocks who beat up the nerds in, in high school started getting involved to, to try and make some money. In 2001, 2002, they realized that the quick money wasn't going to be here anymore, and they left. And literally, like 101 emptied up, emptied out, right? So they just you could drive without a lot of traffic. And the people who stayed were the people who didn't want to leave because they just loved building stuff. They loved nerding out. They loved you know geeking out, and they loved being around geeks versus just tolerating that in order to turn a quick buck. And so th that sort of that helped Silicon Valley, I think, stay authentic to its roots through the early knots. And now what I'm seeing is, you know, with, with Silicon Valley continuing to thrive, and, and thankfully based on more real economics than existed in the late 90s, 
there are a lot of people who are here with like a, a background in consulting, a background in banking, and are are here to make a quick buck and don't really care about technology. They don't really care about technologists. This sort of like the the, the price they have to pay to be in this in this area, and they really I, I think take a lot from the from the culture that's here, and that kind of combined with pricing out a lot of the artists and the service workers and sort of the bourgeoisie uh, of the valley and, and pushing them out to East Bay and beyond is creating a meaningful social stratification that is that is not healthy and it's not conducive to the companies that are here building a highly effective highly compassionate applications when you just have a bunch of tech bros building apps for other tech bros that's not only disheartening it also has really limited total addressable market and i don't see a lot of short term functions that are opposing that or changing that trend and so that's definitely something that uh, that i worry about and what about something that you feel fortunate or excited about something that gives you hope i think a lot of it is that even in the face of you know great pay at big companies and and, and the high cost of living here, there's still a lot of people who are, who are excited about going out and doing a startup just because they can't help themselves, right? Um, <laughs> they, they, they love building stuff and they know that they have options elsewhere, but they really just are infected by this idea of, uh, I, I got to go build stuff and I got to go build it on my own terms. I love that there really is a pay it forward mentality that, that continues to pervade the valley, where people help each other out, people look for ways to volunteer, people look for ways to be to be useful, uh, regardless of whether or not there's anything in it for them. So folks are are, are not mercenary. There really is an open door for uh, people trying to help other people, and I think it's one of the things that makes Silicon Valley really fantastic. A lot of other business cultures are much more transactional and mercenary, and just there's a lot of just open pay it forward mentorship that continues to happen here to to this day and i think that really compounds the value of, a, of of an area and culture so i'm definitely encouraged by that do you think those effects can compound and become something more wide scale in a in a blockchain and open source type movement <laughs> um, <laughs> so i think where people want to give it forward and produce artifacts that are not fixed to geography, so things like writings or um, recorded lectures, decks, you know, e- emails, you know, anything like that, then you can kind of preserve those thoughts across space and time, and people anywhere and anytime in the future can avail themselves of those learnings, and that's fantastic. But I, I, I still think there is also some magic to be had in the face-to-face. Maybe you could say that someday VR will really make it, you fool your brain into thinking somebody else is physically with you. But there is something magical in, in sharing that, that journey together. And I, I think an important part of that when it comes to entrepreneurship is just the uh, tremendous emotional stress of starting a company, uh, knowing that what you create is probably not going to work out. And it's um, that being able to support each other in that journey is I think really important. It's one of the the big pros of of Silicon Valley. I didn't mean so much locationally as an alternative corporate structure that was based more off of people creating versus people working. Well, so it's it's interesting, and this gets to philosophical questions about like why do people work? Why do people build the things that they build, and <laughs> what are the right structures for for rewarding that? I think some of the efforts to find ways to channel money towards people who contribute open source are, are, are they're well intentioned, but they 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 may not be effective in the ways that their proponents are hoping. Uh, and that's that gets sort of the root cause of like why do people work on open source projects? Um, and if if I pay you per say very naively line of code that you contribute to an open source project, will that actually increase the volume and quality of your contributions or will it have other effects? I, I don't know if you've read um, Drive, the surprising reason why uh, about what motivates us. I know, the, I know the basic premise from the TED Talks, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah. 
and so my my belief is that you'll see that with a lot of open source projects. Now, I think what's interesting is that there are some people who are in a position where they're maybe working part-time on a project and would love to go full-time. And if you could just pay them a basic salary, that's enough where they don't need to stress about money. It's not going to be something that makes them rich, but just ha- have some sort of baseline salary to see, um, hey, can you go full-time on this and drive even more impact? And then if it's not working out, if they stop, uh, if, if they're not contributing enough amount, then you you take that away. But you basically allow people to go full-time on on projects. I think that's potentially interesting. There's there, there's maybe a there there. Especially as we move toward a, at least a seemingly more automated world. Potentially. Potentially. Interesting. What are your thoughts? Well, again, this has to do with like, who are the creators of value? Why do they create that value? And what incentivizes them to create more value? And then how is value captured? So how do you actually turn some of the value created into dollars and dollars that are deployed in a way that increases the likelihood that the creators are going to go and, and create more, right? And, and these are some uh, somewhat unsolved problems in, when, it, when it comes to intellectual property creation. Definitely. It's, it's interesting to move towards an era where things become more collective, intellectual property becomes kind of a bottleneck. What areas are you most excited about today? So I think going back to my core theses, these are industries where there hasn't been a lot of attention or hype from Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and there's a, a lot of value to be had there. So I think about you know, elements, I think about metallurgy, I think about markets like Bangladesh, where there's not a lot of attention or focus right now, but have tremendous potential. I think about underground mining. There's been a little bit of attention on uh, finding ways to use drones to help with you know, pit mining and overground mining, but there's not been a whole lot of uh, tech focus that I've seen, at least, in terms of underground mining, but there's a lot of interesting things to be done there. The ocean remains a really I- intriguing area. We know very little about the ocean floor. We know a heck of a lot more about the surface of the moon and its composition and topology and what's there than we, than we do about the bottom of the ocean. And, and so I, I think there's a lot of interesting work uh, to be done there, not only around mapping and characterization, but also things like you know, underwater mining. Uh, sort of, again, going back to this thesis of look at stuff that was really hyped decades ago, and you can take a look at, I think it was in the 70s that there was this a big hype cycle around mining under uh, underwater manganese and cobalt uh, nodules on the on the seafloor, and it, it's really fascinating because it turns out that a good chunk of the hype around this was uh, fronting basically a cover for the CIA uh, that was <laughs> trying to pull up Russian subs that had uh, sunk to the bottom, and they did it under the cover of being part of this un- underwater mining hype cycle. So some fascinating stories there, but. Part of why that was exciting was that there is actually a there there, and uh, I think it was last year that uh, Japan discovered a pretty large uh, cobalt uh, deposit uh, underwater, and we we don't have great wise to, uh, ways to systematically mine that today. So I, I would expect to see in the next couple of years a wave of folks working on underwater drones uh, for exploration, for construction, for mining. And so that's another area where I think there's, there's lots of value to be created, but right now there's not a whole lot of hype. And so I'm excited by that. Do you find it harder to attract LPs when you're investing in inherently unsexy fields? Well, I think you have to have a thesis. You know, I think LPs aren't dumb. They look at the overall VC industry and they see that the vast majority of VCs out there fail to beat the public markets. It's really hard to beat you know, NASDAQ. It's hard to beat the S&P 500. And if you're just kind of a second-tier VC that's uh, seeing about the same deals as everyone else and investing in the same deals as everyone else, and in, you're not what's called a thesis-oriented investor, and you're not top-tier, then you're, you're either going to be overpaying for your deals or you're going to get shut out. And, and the numbers just pretty unequivocally back me up on this to show that you're going to underperform. So that means that the discriminating LP is going to either look at do you have a, such a stellar reputation that, as a firm or as a GP 
that you are going to be able to get into deals that basically nobody else is, like the, that startups are going to demand to take your money even at a lower valuation than is available from, from other parties? Or do you have access to proprietary deal flow because you're investing in companies that right now nobody else is in, in investing in, right? So I think for, for a discriminating VC that actually wants to beat the public markets, they need to either be investing in top tier or find you know, interesting off-axis theses because just the the MO of sh- shoveling huge amounts of money at second-tier VCs does not actually seem to be a market-beating strategy. See, I agree with you, but you're defending the position. My question is more, do you think that is, is actually more challenging that a lot of VCs or a lot of LPs just go with the herd? Um, yeah, I think it's more challenging to start with, but I think that you know, as as LPs get more demanding to see differentiated returns, that I see them pivoting more toward, you know, hey, what are you going to do that's that's actually going to beat the market here? We would we would hope so. Yeah. So I know I've had you on here for a while, David. My last question for you is well, something that I don't quite remember what it was. So my new next last question. For you. <laughs> is going to be if you had to pick one public and one private company and invest half your wealth in each, which would it be and why? So in terms of public company, uh, I'm definitely an ongoing fan of NVIDIA. I, I think they're, they've proven very difficult to compete with. They have great chips uh, they, and they've pivoted from not just being a kind of gaming card company, kind of accidentally being a Bitcoin mining company, but then furthermore pivoting to deep learning and continuing to stay ahead of the market, not just understanding what the market needs today, but what the market is likely to need tomorrow, and then aggressively working with, uh, with partners across the ecosystem to build out platforms that can take advantage of NVIDIA's proprietary silicon. And so you saw that with this week's announcement of the uh, GTX, uh, so actually the R- the RTX boards that came out, where they're they're selling now consumer gear that not only has GPU, basically shader uh, processors in it, but it also has these special ray, ray tracer uh, <laughs> processing cores and uh, tensor processing cores, and making the that kind of uh, unbelievable computing power available to developers not only has some short term benefits like okay, fine, your video games are a bit smarter and look a bit prettier, but also has interesting long-term benefits for bringing some more of that deep learning training and inference power uh, into consumer gear at a much faster clip than I think would have been reasonable to expect. So I think NVIDIA is really continuing to stay ahead of the game there, playing a really disciplined game around being ahead of the the market and, and needs for compute that I, I think demands respect. So I got a lot of respect for NVIDIA. On the private side, uh, I would say one company that just I keep on bumping into is, uh, is Robinhood. They've done a really good job executing. They've done a really good job you know, o- opening the market to a lot more people being equity holders. So I, I feel like they're, uh, they're increasingly getting to the spot where they're you know, Schwab or Vanguard for, for millennials. And I, I can't help but think that uh, one of the big banks is, is going to swoop in and offer a very pretty penny for them. They seem to be totally taking off and they're executing really, really well. There's some bunch of interesting directions they could go. I feel like after Intuit bought Mint, uh, that kind of left a vacuum in the personal finance space. If you ask around and try and see like, what, is, uh, what are the best tools and technologies that are out there for helping manage your personal finances, the answers are all pretty crappy right now. You know, Mint still exists, but there's a bunch of functionality that it doesn't have that would make it a more meaningful financial planner. Uh, Quicken has finally got some attention on the Mac, but it's still a pretty lame product for a bunch of reasons and has serious usability issues. So it's a, there, there's a hole in the market, and I would be super excited if Robinhood pivoted to be able to also take over more aspects of personal finance. I could imagine them getting very, very popular. So those are the two companies, one public, one private, that, that I'm excited about in terms of uh, futures. Do you think Robinhood will end up crushing Coinbase? Um, tough call. Um, I, I will say that you know, Coinbase seems a lot more particularly tied to uh, crypto and what's going on there and sort of the fate of that larger, uh, the, the fate of that particular market. Uh, whereas 
Robin Hood is is getting a chance to play in that area, but also isn't tied to it. So you know, even if crypto go, goes totally south as an asset class, which I secretly hope will happen. Oops, did I say that out loud? That uh, that, that Robin Hood still has a a really interesting future. So I would I would I would bet a, on Robin Hood against Coinbase. Interesting. So those are definitely not two of the companies I would have guessed. I guess the the um, NVIDIA, the first one, obviously makes sense. They've been taking off thanks to the GPUs. Now, I have one last question for you, David. If that's something, what would you want to leave people with? A quote, an action statement, something of that type? Oh, I think just mainly that the Karma Bank is real, um, particularly in a well-connected economy like Silicon Valley. So if you find ways to be useful to people, find ways to help, you may think, oh, I'm, I'm early in my career. I don't know enough to be useful to anyone. Uh, you're wrong. There are things that you know, there's experiences that you've had that are going to be useful to other people. And to at every stage in your career, be looking around you to ask, uh, how can I help? How can I convene people? And, and if there's a conference that auto exists and where conference could mean like literally just getting 10 people together in, in a room, go make it, go make it happen. Go reach out to those 10 people. If there's somebody who might need advice, go and and see if you can advise them and give them a hand, right? So you'll find that that helps you refine your own skill sets, just trying to be useful to other people. And that also word about you and your utility will spread. So the best way to network and put yourself out there and get glued into a community and have interesting opportunities open up is to just focus on on being useful to the people around you and not being particularly mercenary about it. Karma is great when it's good and sucks when it's bad. We all yep. know we all know why we deserve what we get. Well. <laughs> yep. Thanks so much for coming on today, David. Where's the best place for people to reach out? Yeah, uh, just David at weekly.org. That's D-A-V-I-D at W-E-E-K-L-Y dot O-R-G. So drop me an email and say hi. Definitely jealous having Ward as a last name is not an easy one. <laughs> and Matt as a first name is like the most traditional white guy name you can have. So I don't know. Dave, David's a close contender. <laughs> I guess that is, true. that is true. Thanks for coming on today, man. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.